Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church family. It is uh, wonderful to see your faces today, and so uh, glad that you decided to come and worship with us this morning. Some of you haven't seen it in a while. Got some of our missionaries here from Madagascar. Excited to see them and different folks. Maybe today's your first time here ever. Uh, we're excited that you decided to come and join us and worship with us this morning. And we just ask you to do one thing. If you'd fill out the worship program, there's a little connection card. If you fill out that little connection card on your worship program uh, and take it, you can drop it in one of the boxes if you want, but we'd love it if you'd take it out to the orange tent on your way out this morning and uh, just connect with some of our folks out there. And we're singing about the goodness of God. I want you to know that our, our desire for you as a church is that you would experience that. The scriptures say that you would taste and see that the Lord is good. And you know what happens when you taste and see that something is good is you keep going back to it. And so our desire is not just that you sing these songs or hear me teach these truths, but that you would experience it yourself. And so we sing about the presence of God. We want the presence of God to be tangible for you to experience it while you're here. And so one of the things we're doing as a church right now is we're doing a prayer initiative. You're going to hear more about this at the end of the service. You're going to receive some information to try and guide you and some prayer between now and our Easter service that's going to be on Easter <laughs> this year. <clears throat> but uh, I want us to pray together. And so let's pray as a church family. Uh, just that we would experience the Lord together this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for every person that you brought to this room right now, and thank you for our church family and the people that you have that are part of uh, what's going on at our church. And I pray, God, that we would experience your presence. I pray that you would lighten our hearts, uh, a passion for you, a longing for you, and that we would want to taste and see that you are good, that we would want to experience you, and that as we do, that it would become something that we give to other people that are around us. As people come into contact with us, that that would become contagious in our lives, a longing for you, a passion for you. Even non-believers would see what we have and they would, they would long for you. They'd see our joy. They'd see our, our love. They'd see our patience. They'd see our kindness. They'd see our gentleness. And I know that's not perfect in any of us right now, but make it more so. Make it more true. Let the fruit of your spirit become more evident in our lives. I pray as we open up your word that you would be our teacher that you'd be the one that would exalt yourself, that you'd be glorified, and that you'd call us to yourself and transform us. Make us more like your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we had a, a memorable service for multiple reasons. We started our new series uh, that we just saw the video for, Not Home Yet. We're looking at this ancient letter that was written by one of Jesus' most well-known followers, Peter. The book is called First Peter. We call it a book in the New Testament. And we were talking about how this place is not our home. And if you were in the service, in the second service uh, last week, you know that we started off, I had a little dollhouse up here, and, and I was exhorting you essentially to not waste your life. That this earth is not our home if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that our citizenship is in heaven, that when we trusted Christ as our Savior, that we received a new identity, a new family, a new hope, and it's a living hope and an eternal inheritance. So it's exhorting us to live in light of that, to live in light of eternity. About 10 to 12 minutes into that service, I started to notice the front half of the room was paying attention. The back half of the room wasn't paying any attention because about six or seven rows over here, there was a woman who had passed out and uh, her son, who was sitting next to her as a, a physician, and he laid her down on the ground to try and uh, bring her back, to revive her back. And, and I, I paused, and we're a church family, so we began to pray, and ushers and first responders, EMTs and doctors and different folks came over to help, nurses, 
and I wanted to give you an update on how that lady's doing. Um, I texted with her son who's here. They're in the service right now. Uh, I texted with him last night, and he said to let you know uh, that he's very grateful for the prayers. And then he, said, he texted me and said, you know, a thought, thinking about it, thinking about it, we were at church. What better place? I mean, you got EMTs and physicians and nurses on standby along with angels. <laughs> he was very grateful for your prayers. And what ended up happening was that woman, she ended up walking out of here, and the paramedics took her to the Duke emergency room, and she ended up going home that night, and she is uh, back to normal today. But the, as a church family, he wanted to thank you, and I want to thank you for responding so well. But I was thinking about what happened. I figured afterwards, and I started preaching again after that, that everybody would be gone. They'd be checked out, like what happened. But I had a couple people come to me and say, what a tangible reminder, what you're talking about, that this world is temporary. We didn't know what happened in that moment. That could have been the end of life on this earth for someone. We didn't know. Praise the Lord, it wasn't, but a reminder for many of us, this earth is not our home. And then I was thinking about it in light of what this week's topic is. So this letter, Peter's writing to these people that are suffering, he didn't talk at all about suffering last week. This week, what we're talking about is that pain is real. What a reminder of that as well. And I was just thinking about, oftentimes when I I preach, God makes things, whatever the topic is that week, so evident in my life while I'm studying it and while I'm learning it. And I just look back over this past week that I experienced. We had a member of our church die this week. And it was one of the, somebody who had been at our church from the very beginning. And we had another, some friends of our church, some members of our church had a friend that's 20 years old that passed away and attended that young man's funeral this week. I didn't, but they did. I went to the hospital, uh, visited one of our members that was in surgery, and you just walk through the hallways of the hospital. And there's joy, sometimes babies are born, and sometimes diseases are cured, but most of it is there's cancer, there's diabetes, there's AIDS heart attacks. It's a heavy place to be walking through the, ho- the hallways of a hospital. And I'm not even talking about big stuff around the world, by the way. I'm not talking about hurricanes, mudslides, floods, planes crashing into buildings, hurricanes coming on cruise ships, much less the political chaos. Just think about the stuff we're arguing about as a country. We are a country of immigrants arguing about immigration laws, the ridiculousness of some of the things that are happening in our world, the pain that's happening in our world. My own life, just thinking this past week, we celebrated the anniversary of a dear friend of mine that was in my small group, passed away one year ago, Andy Moore, some of you know him. His wife, kids, still mourning the loss of a father and a husband. And that's just in my little sphere of influence. There are things going on in some of your lives I have no idea. In fact, some people here, you might have things going on no one has any idea that's happening in your life. We didn't talk about divorces, mental illness. I haven't mentioned any of that stuff. There's pain. And sometimes pastors, I've even heard pastors say this, there's a verse of scripture that applies to all of our pain that sometimes pastors will say, don't quote, in the middle of somebody's pain, don't ever quote Romans 8, 28. Do you know Romans 8, 28? It says that God works all things together for good for those who love him that are called according to his purposes. Well, why wouldn't you quote that verse? Well, it seems, it's not that it's not true, but the timing sometimes is bad because the verse, it doesn't say what the good purposes are. And so you're in it and you're like, okay, I don't know how this could be good, especially when you're in the pain. How is this going to be good, whatever it is that you're going through? So sometimes skeptics will even say, if God's powerful and he's good, how does he allow bad things to happen even in the lives of his own people? Some of you experience that and go, yeah, I even wonder that as a believer. Let me tell you something. If you're a skeptic and you're here today, and that's the thing that you say stops you from believing in God, this is going to be a great message for you. If you're in the middle of pain, I think this is going to be a great message for you. And even if you're not, let me tell you something. Jesus promised in this world we will have trouble. You may have not experienced great suffering in your life up to this point. You will eventually. 
mark the passage that we're going to look at today. It's going to be in 1 Peter. What Peter basically does in this passage is he unpacks Romans 8.28. He tells us the why, the what, of what are these good purposes? What are you talking about? Today's message I've titled, God's Plan for Your Pain. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter, looking at this letter written about 2,000 years ago by, like I mentioned, one of Jesus' most well-known followers, this guy named Peter. It's towards the back of the New Testament, if you have your Bibles, and so just start turning towards the back. If you hit Romans, that's a big book. Keep going to the right. You hit Hebrews, keep going to the right, but don't go too fast, because then there's James and Peter, and it's only four pages in my Bible, maybe three or four or five in your, your Bible, depends on the size of the print. And what's happening is these people, about 60 A.D., 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven, Peter's writing to them. They're going through suffering. They're going through persecution. And Nero's in charge. He's killing Christians for his own joy. Some of them are losing family, not because they've been killed, but because they've trusted Jesus and their family excommunicates them. Some of them have lost family because they're being killed because of their faith. And Peter doesn't say anything about that in the first five verses. What Peter talks about is being born again. He talks about this eternal perspective. He talks about the fact this place is not our home. He talks about a living hope. He talks about an eternal inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. But then in verse 6, he starts talking about pain. I remember when I was studying 1 Peter, just preparing to preach this to our church, and there was one guy that I was reading, and he said that 1 Peter is a great book just to take somebody through. If you've never been discipled, just go and study through Peter to help somebody grow in their faith, especially somebody who's living in in a culture that's hostile to Christianity, which, by the way, we are. Even though heads aren't getting cut off in America, If there's one thing that's not tolerated, it's Christianity. And so this isn't a discipleship book that I would write. Like many people, if you write it, you write based on what you think is important for like a new believer to learn. And so if I was writing a discipleship curriculum, I'd talk about prayer, how to study your Bible, how to share your faith with a lost loved one. I wouldn't talk about topics like how valuable suffering is. But Peter does. So look at God's plan for your suffering. Look at it with me, verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. And by the way, that's your praise and your glory and your honor. Jesus is going to be praised and glorified and honored when he comes, but here it's talking about your praise and your honor and your glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so here in this passage of Scripture, when first five verses, Peter doesn't talk at all about suffering, and in verse 6 he gets into it. But you look at it, look at verse 6, and look at verse 8, and then look at verse 7. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and look at it yourself. Know that it's not just me saying this. It starts off with this phrase, in this we rejoice. Well, we're talking about suffering. What do you mean, in this we rejoice? It's okay. The very first part, it refers back to verses 1 through 5, which is about our salvation. This fact that we're what the verses 1 through 5 call these elect exiles, that we're foreigners. And that's what we were talking about last week. We were talking about this place not being our home, that we're foreigners in this place. We rejoice in our salvation. We've been given a new birth, a new hope, a new family, a new identity. And as foreigners, we've got different values in this place. That's one of the reasons why we can live like this world is not our home. In this we rejoice. That's amazing. But then he starts talking about pain. He's talking about these various trials that we're grieved, if necessary. And you might hold on to that phrase, especially skeptics here. Hold on to that phrase, if necessary, because it's going to answer a lot of your questions. But then you get down to verse 8, and he starts talking about joy again. 
talks about joy, inexpressible joy, talks about rejoicing. And so here we've got in Peter almost like this sandwich, joy, pain, joy again. Here's what Peter's telling us in this passage of Scripture, and the one thing I hope you walk away from this, this today, this room, when you walk out those doors, I hope this is the truth that you remember, that God's plan for your suffering, your pain, is your greatest joy. God's plan for your pain is great joy. And that sounds like pure insanity to most people. Because some people even don't think that God is for joy. Some people have a view of God, just so that you know, and some of you have been Christians for a while, you might think this is ridiculous. Some of you might go, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. That God's like a cosmic killjoy. That he's up in heaven, and when you become a Christian, he takes away all the words that you can use on the golf course. You can no longer use those words anymore. They're gone. And it's like he's watching and going, oh, you're having fun? I'm going to make up a rule about that. You better cut that out down there. Some people view God that way. That's not the God we read about in the Bible. That might be a God that some of you, because some twisted religious experience that you've had, but that's not the God that we read about in the Bible. The God that we read about in the Bible is continually talking about our joy. In fact, he says one of the things that happens when we trust Christ as our Savior is we receive the Spirit of Christ to come live in us. The Bible often refers to as the Holy Spirit. One of the results of that, or what the Bible says is the fruit of that, in Galatians chapter 5, is that you would have joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Paul, he commands the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. He's writing that from prison, FYI. Paul says when he's writing to the Corinthians, the reason why he's ministers to them, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, but we work with you, why? For your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Then we get crazy statements like what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 2. He says rejoice in all the various kinds of trials you have. Whatever your trials, rejoice in your trials. That's what Peter's saying here in our passage today. Rejoice in the various kinds of trials. You'll be grieved for a moment. These are necessary. God has a plan in it. That's why I've titled this message God's plan for your pain. You can rejoice in it. That sounds like insanity. Unless, unless we have a different set of values. Unless we look at life from a different perspective. Because this place is not our home. The best way I could think to illustrate this to you, to give you an example from my own life. Some of you are friends with me on social media, and so you know that on Christmas Day, I spent a good portion of my day in the emergency room. One of the members of the worship team was so compassionate and kind to share with me. He said, well, I figured you're running low on illustrations, and so God did that to you almost like a gift, (laughs) which I thought to myself, well, I would be totally cool with boring sermons and a boring life if I could avoid some of the things that happened in my life. But what ended up happening was on Christmas Day, our family, our close family with our kids and all that, we went over to my brother and sister-in-law's house. They got a new house, had a big living room, and we invited all the aunts and uncles and grandparents and kids and cousins. They were all there. And my little kid's grandparents, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, bought one of my kids a bike. It was great. The bike was already assembled, but my father-in-law didn't take the instructions of the assembly off the seat. So what I'm about to share with you is 110% his fault. (laughs) Just to be clear, the manufacturers of the bike must have thought the instructions were very valuable because they were strapped on there in a way that no human was going to get them off with their bare hands. There was this plastic device that was on there that was holding the instructions on. And so I went to my brother-in-law and I said, hey, do you have a knife or uh, some kind of tool that I can break this plastic thing off this bike with? And he had just moved into the house, so he wasn't sure, so he started digging through this drawer and then he hands me this lock blade. He knows that's dangerous because he's heard my other stories before. But I walk away and he says as I'm walking away, hey, here's some scissors. <laughs> To which I thought, but a knife is so much cooler and so much more manly. 
So I'm walking over, and I get to the bike seat, and I lock, you know, open this lock blade up, and he says, I don't know how sharp that is. I'm sure the kids have used it for, like, boxes and all this kind of stuff, and all the other kids are playing. They're not really paying attention. And I start pressing down on this piece of plastic until it gives. And when it gave, I don't know, for some moronic reason, I had my hand underneath it, and all of a sudden I knew how sharp the knife was because I could see the inside of my hand for this brief moment. Before I started seeing this very dark red substance start to come out, and what I didn't say is that my hand had actually sprayed blood on his brand new cabinets in his house, on his floor, it was all over the floor, it was on the bike, I had white tires, by the way, all over my pants. But it didn't hurt that bad, surprisingly, and so I just put my hand over top of it, knowing there's a bunch of little kids around, I walked towards the kitchen, I very calmly said, I cut my hand, it's pretty bad, and no one really responded, just so you know. My wife's a nurse. She's on the other side of the kitchen. She goes, put it underneath the faucet. My mother-in-law is standing by the kitchen sink, so she turns the water on. And then I take my hand off of my hand, and it starts to, and I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating, can I ask anybody in my family, like a Halloween prank, you start spraying blood. It starts shooting blood. Blood is spraying off of my hand every time my pulse is going at that moment. Now I have their attention, just so you know. My wife comes rushing over, and she's like, you're going to the hospital. You know, I cover it back up. And, and then my mother-in-law goes over to their fridge, and she's talking to my sister-in-law, and they just moved into this house. And so their fridge hadn't really made much ice yet. And I hear her saying over to her, my mother-in-law, she goes, I'm not trying to not have ice. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm bleeding out over here. Can you all chill with the family drama? Like, normally I think it's fun when there's, like, stuff that happens during, keeps the holidays eventful. But at that moment, I wasn't thinking it was that fun. We got in the backseat of my brother-in-law's truck, and my hand did not hurt that bad. And my wife asked me, I said, how are you doing? I said, I feel like I'm doing okay, but I just, I'm cold and I just keep sweating. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. And I get to the doctor, you know, the emergency room. And they give me a shot and they do tetanus. The lady asked me, the, she asked me this question. She said, did you mean to hurt yourself? I'm like, what kind of question is that? Do I look that dumb? Like, are you kidding me? So I actually at that moment was thinking, are you deciding which kind of treatment to give me? And the one's painful, one's not. Wasn't sure what was going to happen in that moment. They stitched me up, gave me a tetanus shot. A couple days later, I'm in the shower, and the water hits my hand for the first time. Now, the doctor had told me, he said, your hand might not feel normal for about a year. And so I'm probably going to tell you more stories about this, just so you know. <laughs> but when the water hit my hand, I went, ah! My wife is compassionate. She comes running to the bathroom. She's like, are you okay? Did it hurt? I'm like, eh, it didn't feel like it normally does. <laughs> but then at that moment, I just looked at it and thought, I kind of like my scar. I felt good about my cut at that moment. And I thought, it's going to remind me when the kids were little and they celebrated Christmas. Let me tell you something, though. I didn't, I didn't like sitting in the backseat of the car and having a cold sweat and not knowing exactly what was happening. I didn't like it when I got there and the doctor said to me, can you move your fingers? And I hadn't even thought to try up until that moment. I thought, did I cut tendon, but I can move my fingers? I didn't like the tetanus shot. I didn't like them seeing them pulling. I didn't like seeing the inside of my hand. I didn't like any of that. I certainly didn't like this week when the emergency bill came to our house. Okay? I didn't like any of that. <laughs> but I, I kind of like the scar as a reminder, looking at it from a different perspective. See, what Peter's saying in this passage is not, hey, when bad stuff happens in your life, you should be happy. It's not that kind of insanity. He says, they're grieved for a little while. You've been grieved for, in light of eternity. When you realize this place isn't your home and you look at life in light of the bigger picture, he's not saying in a little while, like, hey, you're going to be okay next week. Maybe you got a bad diagnosis from the doctor this week. No, he's not saying that. It might be the rest of your life. You might struggle in your marriage with the tensions of your marriage for the rest of your life. Mental illness may always be a thorn in your flesh. Those things may be for, but it's just this life for a little while. But, but notice he says this too, if necessary, 
The things that happen in our lives don't happen because of fate. Even though the story, not an accident, there's no accidents, all part of God's plan, even our suffering. I'm not saying that God is the author of sin, but I am saying that even our suffering is part of His plan. How does that work? We'll talk about it in just a moment. But if you want to know if suffering is part of God's plan, just look at the cross. It's part of God's plan since before time began. And he prophesies about it in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth, read Isaiah 52 and 53, that Jesus would be our suffering servant, part of God's plan. Before he ever walked the earth, God wasn't, when, when they nailed Jesus to the cross, he wasn't up in heaven in an emergency mode. When something happens in your life, he's not thinking to himself, it's, I'm not trying to not have ice. I wish I could help you, I just can't. See, sometimes skeptics think that, that God must be powerless, like he can't do something here. Skeptics understand this, underline this. If necessary, this is needed. The trials are necessary. They have a purpose. That's why I say God's plan for your pain. And Peter tells us, the Bible gives us a lot of reasons. So maybe some of those reasons, but Peter tells us three in this passage. And the first one is this, to prove your faith. So verse 6, I'll read it again just to give us the context. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Various trials, he's talking to people that are undergoing persecution. But various trials means multifaceted, all kinds of different trials. So any type of trial you can imagine, tribulation, war, cancer, all kinds of trials, various trials. So that, verse 7, when you see the word so that in the Bible, they're telling you a reason. Because here's why. Here's why what's necessary, the various trials, so that the tested genuineness, and that's where I get the point of proof, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to prove your genuine faith. The point here is not to prove that your faith is not genuine. In fact, this, this word here means to show to be approved. It's a testing to approve. It's to build your confidence. You want to know why you can have joy in this? Because when you look back at it, like looking at the scar, you realize I be- all of us, if we're thinking Christians, doubt from time to time. So when you're in one of those dark moments, you can look back at one of your trials and say, I, I believed you through that. I can believe you in that dark moment. I can believe you in this dark moment. Why does it lead to joy? God's got a good purpose. Here's one of the good purposes. Proof. Proof that your faith is genuine. And anything that's going to be proven genuine goes through a test. And so you think about it. We've got all kinds of fake stuff in our world. Fake news is kind of the, the hot word phrase nowadays. There are actually people, and I know sometimes people think of fake news as just like it's, it's the, you know, Republicans think it's Democratic news and Democrats think it's Republican news. No, no, no. There's actually people that knowingly write news that's not true and you can't believe everything that's on the Internet. Just FYI. Just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. There's fake news out there. So it's got to go through a test. What are the sources? Do you start testing the sources? Are they credible sources? Where are the sources? Where'd they get their information? There's a test for that. There are all kinds of counterfeits out there. Counterfeit money, counterfeit jewelry, counterfeit food, counterfeit gasoline. There's all kinds of stuff out there that's fakes. They all have tests that they go through to see if they're genuine. In fact, the International Chamber of Commerce says that in 2015, the counterfeit industry was a $2 trillion industry trillion dollars. That's crazy. That's like you're starting to talk about our debt. <laughs> the numbers are huge. 
I was reading this week, uh, Pastor Seth came walking in my office, I was looking at some art stuff online, and I'm not like an art guy, like an art connoisseur or anything, but I had this painting on my screen that I was looking at and reading this article about, it was the most expensive painting that's ever been sold, private party or auction. Up until that point, the most expensive painting that ever been sold was a Picasso, it was sold for $179 million. This painting claimed to be a Leonardo da Vinci, $450 million. Think about jumping from categories. They skipped 250 million. They just went straight to almost a half a billion dollars. Imagine spending that much money on a painting. Imagine that much money. (laughs) (laughs) But get this, there's debate about whether it's authentic. Can you imagine if you spent 450 million dollars on a painting and then they run the test and they come back and go, it's not a Leonardo da Vinci, it's his cousin Leonard. (laughs) But it's still pretty, right? (laughs) No! I'm going to imagine anybody who would buy a painting like that is going to have the test done already. And so there might be some skeptics that are questioning whether it's true, but I'd imagine tests have been done. There's always tests. The test that Peter mentions here is, is gold being tested. We know that happens through fire. And so you test money one way. You test chemicals another way. Some of you are scientists. You know that. You test authenticity of sources another way. Some of you are academics. You know that. You know how faith gets tested? Trials. And it proves it genuine. Just think in the Bible how we see this. We see it over and over again. What about Job? Oftentimes we talk about the book of Job because Job suffered so much. You talk about trials, it's almost impossible to preach a sermon and not mention Job. You see in that book, the guy loses in one day multiple businesses. Some of you are business people. In multi, he's diversified his portfolio. He's got multiple industries. Read Job chapter 1, and they're all gone in a moment. All of his kids die in one instant, ten of them. You could say it was an accident. You read the passage, it certainly looked like from a human perspective, a natural disaster, Seven sons, three daughters, all dead in an instant. Some of you have lost babies, miscarriage. Some of you have lost children that are older. Some of you are adults. You had adult children die, and you still think, that's wrong. I'm supposed to die before my kids. Ten in one day. But that's just the beginning for Job. You keep reading the book, he gets boils from head to toe. He can barely touch himself. He's in so much pain. He talks about his skin. He says, I've got worms in my skin and dust on my skin. It's become dark, leprosy-type disease on his skin. He gets thin. His bones ache. He starts to lose his mind. He talks about how he has these dreams that torment him. He can't control his thoughts. He's experienced many of the things that some of us in portions and pieces have experienced all in, in one life. He's got friends that are giving him terrible advice. You know the problem for Job? I've often said the problem for Job is he doesn't read his own book. See, stuff happens in our life. Sometimes we don't even know what's going on. It's bigger than us. And what happens in God's word is he lets us see into people's lives. And so in Job chapter 1, we see something that Job had no idea happened. In verses 6 through 12, there's this heavenly discourse between God and Satan. And you know what Satan says? Job only loves you because you've made his life easy. And then God allows pain. You want to know how sin works? God's not deceiving you. He's not the author of sin. He's not trying to destroy you. He's not the author of sin. But he's sovereign over even the sin that happened in this world. It was sin when people nailed Jesus to the cross. But it was also part of God's plan. So God's got a plan that includes your suffering, but he's not the author of sin. And so the only things that happened in Job's life were things that God allowed Satan to do in Job's life. And when he comes through on the other side, he's got a genuine faith. Think about Abraham. Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 verse 1 says that Abraham was tested. You know what happens in Genesis chapter 22? He's been waiting his whole life to have a son. His son's now about 16 to 20 years old. 
And God says, you give me your son. Put him on the altar. Sacrifice your son. Abraham could have said, no. God would never do that. That wasn't God. I'm not going to hear that. He could have said, no, I got what I wanted from God. Now I'm done with God. Because some people just want gifts from God. They don't want him. But why did, why did God wait until Abraham was the age that he was, until his son was almost 20 years old? Why did he, maybe he wouldn't have been ready at 10. Maybe he wouldn't have been ready at 15. The point's not to show Abraham the faultiness of his faith. He's showing him the genuine, it's like a gift. You see, what God does in our suffering, your suffering actually serves you, just so you know. God uses suffering to serve us in our lives. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, that same passage where it says, God works all things together for good for those who love him. Do you know what else he says? He says that we're more than conquerors. I remember reading one author that ended up talking about being more than a conqueror and saying that that means he uses the things that at one time were over us, one time countered us, one time ruled, they, it had victory to actually serve us. Because you think about what it is to me more than a conqueror. What does it mean? Because when you win, you conquer. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Last week, I sat in the front row, a good friend of mine, Matt Nyhoff, sitting towards the back today, maybe because I used him as an example in the service last week, came up. He's an NC State fan. He sat next to me. For those of you who didn't know, uh, NC State beat Duke last week. So give you your moment, NC Staters. Go ahead. All right, there you go. I'm sorry, Duke fans. I try to be an equal opportunity offender. But in this moment, you did lose. So... And I hate Duke. But <clears throat> so still love you, Jim. So Duke loses. They were conquered in that moment. In that time, at that night, at least that night, they were conquered. I don't know this for a fact, so you can try and verify it. I would love it if you would. I'm 99.99999999% sure that I'm accurate in this. Is that after the game, I'm pretty confident Coach K wasn't waiting in the NC State locker room to get the ice bath started for each one of the starters of the NC State basketball team. I'm pretty confident that after the NC State basketball team left, Coach K wasn't standing there, you know, snapping them with towels and taking their jerseys so he could take them back to his house and wash them in his own washing machine and iron them so they'd be ready for the Clemson game. Pretty sure. I don't know. See, that'd be more than a conqueror. Because a conqueror, you win in battle, and the enemy waves the white flag. They surrender. But to be more than a conqueror means they start to serve you. Now, what was the list of things in Romans chapter 8 that I'm referring to when it talks about being more than conqueror? Let me read it to you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Satan's plan is to use these things to separate you from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress? See, all Peter says in our passage is various trials. Paul names them. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. The list could go on. Cancer. AIDS, loss of a loved one, miscarriage. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, the things he just listed, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So not only did Jesus conquer death, death becomes his servant. Not only did Jesus conquer these things in your life, you are more than a conqueror, so your suffering actually serves you. One of the ways it serves you, Peter's telling us in this passage, it proves your faith is genuine. It's proof, but not only does it prove your faith is genuine, it also God uses it to purify your faith. Go back to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 6 and 7 both again. Second point, it purifies our faith. First, it proves the genuineness of our faith. Second one, it purifies our faith. Verse 6, to give us context again, in this you rejoice, 
though now for a little while, it's all temporary, if necessary, there is a purpose, you have been grieved. It's not fun in the moment. You don't have to be happy that bad things are happening in your life. By various trials, all kinds, there's lots of them. Here's why, though, so that the tested genuineness proof of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, it's purified. Maybe found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Last week, if you remember, I was preaching on eternal inheritance. And so if you go up just a couple verses to verse 4, it says to an internal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. When I got to undefiled, I shared with you, there's nothing really in this world that I can use as a good illustration. Because there's nothing that's truly undefiled. Because even if it's pure, because of our deceptive hearts, we can, we can make it tainted. We taint it by sin. Sometimes because we're tempted to make those things ultimate in our lives, even good gifts from God, we make the ultimate thing and we start to worship the gift instead of the giver. And then things that, that would be considered pure by us, that we see them, we're tempted to worship creation, Romans chapter 1, rather than the creator. And so there's nothing that's really undefiled. But here's the danger, blessing, in preaching to such an educated audience. <laughs> So many of you know so much more than I do about many topics, science being one of them. And so after the service last week, I had one of our very intelligent members come up to me and say, did you know that there is a such thing as pure water? And they started to tell me about some presentations they had seen at work and even told me that there's a such thing as a, a water scientist. I didn't even know that was a thing. If that's your job, I love you. I'm so glad you do that job. And please fill out the connection card. We'd love to have you come back. But what this guy did is he sent me a link of a water scientist talking about the purification of water, and I was watching it, and it was interesting to see that the water scientist said in the purification of water, getting all the minerals out of it, getting all the extra stuff out of it, all the impurities out of it, that water doesn't even like to be impure. It tries to take on impurities. And I thought, in this broken world, isn't it crazy that even water doesn't want to be pure? <laughs> and she said, if you send pure water through copper pipes, it'll try to strip the copper off of the pipes. It's actually dangerous for us to drink pure water in large quantities because it pulls the electrolytes out of our blood, pulls the minerals, and it starts stripping things from our body into it because it doesn't want to be pure. And I thought, that's naturally how we go through life. We don't want to be pure. We like losing our temper. We like overeating. We like giving into lust, into, and all these desires that happen living in this world. This place isn't your home, though. And what God does is he takes us through a purifying process, various kinds of trials, to purify our faith so that we'll know him more. That's how we experience joy. The analogy he uses in the passage is gold. We know how gold is refined is that you heat it up. The impurities rise to the surface. Then they can be removed. But it doesn't all work usually the first time, so you've got to keep doing it over and over. What happens in our lives? God turns up the heat Various kinds of trials, all kinds of different trials, different people, different circumstances, different personalities, different idols, different things happening, various trials for various people, if necessary, it's part of God's plan, to remove the impurities in our face so when the heat gets turned up, the impurities come to the surface. And for, some, for people like me, you don't even need major trials. You put me on hold for a long time with a cable company and the impurities start to rise to the surface, I promise. But then there's stuff that's bigger that happens. What happens? You start to trust more. I remember one time going through a real big struggle, and at the backside of it, talking to a friend, and he said, oh, you kept your faith through it. I said, it's like John chapter 6, though. Peter, where else are you going to go? You know what happens in John chapter 6? Jesus, it's not a bad circumstance for people. Jesus starts to give hard teaching that people don't like. He's not just giving them everything they want. 
And so many disciples, it says in that passage, leave Jesus. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And then Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That's often what happens for us in in these trials is that we're purified in our faith because we get closer to Jesus because we're forced to turn to him. We can't trust in ourselves anymore. Paul talks about that in Corinthians. We are forced to trust in God. It was more than we could handle in life. The classic example is Peter, the guy that writes this book. Just look at his life. You want to talk about faith being purified? Look at this guy in the Gospels versus the guy that we read about when we're reading this passage of Scripture. Different person because God's purified his faith. You go back to the Gospels, Peter's the guy who says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And then after the the Last Supper, when, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and communion that we celebrate now, right afterwards, they have an argument about who's the greatest. Isn't that ironic? And then Jesus tells them they're going to deny him, all of them, not just Peter. He says, you're going to deny me. You're all going to go away. You know what Peter says? Three years he's been hanging out. These are his best friends, 11 other guys. Been close. They're like in a fraternity together. They've had experiences nobody else has ever had together. They're the only ones that are living on this mission with Jesus that have left everything to be with Jesus like this. And he says, if these losers, (laughs) thanks, Peter. Appreciate you throwing me under the bus. So these losers dump you. I'm with you. I'll be there. Do you know what that is? That's pride. And then Jesus, he pulls him aside, Luke shows us, and he says, you know, Satan's asked to sift you, but I prayed for you, and when you turn back, i.e., I know you're going to turn from me, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. You know what happens in Peter's story is that Jesus gets arrested, Judas betrays him, and then the next worst sin that any of the disciples commit is Peter, next to Judas. He follows him to the high priest's courtyard, And he's not standing before a firing squad. Remember this. He's not about to get his head chopped off. A servant girl comes up to him and says, I recognize your accent. You you were with Jesus. Not me. That's one. Then again, no, you know, you were with him. Not me too. Third time he calls down curses from heaven. And then the rooster crows. And then he turns and he looks and he sees Jesus eye to eye. And then he leaves and he weeps bitterly. He's broken. It was painful. Then he goes back to his old way of life, fishing. And one morning, he sees Jesus on the shore, and Jesus restores him. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus says to him, do you love me? You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Do you love me? This is the third time in John chapter 21 when he says, do you love me? He says, it grieved Peter. You know why? Because it's painful. Even restoration is painful. It was for his good. You know what you see later? A different man. What did you see before? Pride, fear. God's stripping those sins out of his life. Raising the heat, turning the heat up. And what do you see in the book of Acts? You know what happens in the book of Acts? He preaches in the name of Jesus. The church gets started. The Sanhedrin comes to him, the most powerful men of their day. Now, so not this little servant girl, the Sanhedrin. Supreme Court says, you're not allowed to use the name of Jesus anymore. Or we're going to torture you, kill you. He says, you decide. It's better to obey God or man. He doesn't say, hey, look at me. I'm going to do what I want. His bravado, his machismo. No. He's depending upon God now, not his pride. Pride's been stripped away. And what happens is they keep their word. He preaches in Jesus' name. They torture him. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says this. Then they left the presence of the council. That's Peter and other people who kept preaching in the name of Jesus, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Dishonor for the name. There again, you've got joy and suffering together in a passage. It's like these people are from a different place. Who's rejoicing and suffering? Maybe, maybe they've got different values. Maybe a different perspective. Maybe they're living for a place other than this place. And it's like Hebrews says, the world is not worthy of them. Is that you? 
So God's got a plan in your pain, and part of it is to purify your face so you be closer to him. There's always suffering before glory. Look at the cross of Christ. And no matter how much God purifies your faith, just so you know, it won't be perfect. Because you have to depend upon the perfections of Jesus Christ that were there on the cross when he was absorbing God's wrath for your sins. There's a third thing in this passage that God's doing, and he's putting your salvation on display. He's presenting your salvation. And we see that in verses 10 through 12. So he's proving your faith, he's purifying your faith, but he's presenting your salvation. But who's he presenting it to? Notice when I read this passage who he's presenting it to. It's not just to you. Like, who's he proving your faith to? Part of it's to yourself, so you'll know. It doesn't say in here to a watching world. It'll talk about that later in Peter. He doesn't say that. It would be ideal. It would be perfect as far as the church that we are and the vision that we have as a church to connect people to Jesus for life change and try and reach this city with the gospel and be a salt and light and see transformation. If it would say that, that's not what it says. It doesn't say a watching world. It doesn't say skeptics. It doesn't say you. It doesn't say the church. Look at what it says, verses 10 through 12. I'll read verses 8 and 9 to give you the context again. Uh, Though you have not seen him, you love him. So Peter, looking at their faith, it's different. Peter's seen him. You do, not re- you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What happens because of that? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, and so for hundreds of years, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, and so the Spirit was telling them as they wrote the Scriptures, was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ. And so they were decided ahead of time. They're predicting the sufferings of Christ, like Moses, like Isaiah. And the subsequent glories was revealed to them. They were serving not themselves, but you, a future generation, and things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Then who's watching things into which angels long to look. He's putting your salvation on display for the angels. See, we typically think of the angels as greater than us. I mean, they live in the immediate presence of God. They're dwelling in God's presence, worshiping Him all the time. God uses them to send messages to us. They're ministering to the church, we read in Hebrews. But do you realize that God's putting on display the church? I mean, read Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. What's the point? The church comes together, the gathering of the redeemed, to reveal this mystery to the angels. It's like a cosmic show that he's putting on display. And what you see when you read the Bible about angels is they're intensely interested in your and my redemption. You see, when Jesus comes to earth, who is it that's there to sing to the shepherds? A multitude of the heavenly host. And glory to God in the highest. Joy and salvation. It says in Luke chapter 15, Verse 7 and verse 10, it's a, the same different stories are told and then the same truth is illustrated, the same thing is said, that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. It's the angels rejoicing in heaven over one person coming to Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, we don't spend much time talking about the book of Revelation, but in Revelation chapter 5, it's the completion of redemption and the angels are there singing. But here's the interesting thing, angels never experience redemption. You know how they know about it? Watching you. Seeing your life when you trust Christ in that moment. And then how redemption is played out throughout your life. None of us are all like Jesus right now. None of us are perfect. None of us are who we want to be. But there are things about our lives that are true because of Jesus that wouldn't be true without Jesus. Just take a moment to think about that, those of you who've trusted Christ as your Savior. Where would you be without Jesus? And the angels watch that and they see that. So last week, I shared with you, the service did not go the way that I had planned. I can tell you that. 
But you know, I'd gone back, I looked at my journal, and my journal, I said, God, will you make your presence palpable to our church? Make it known that you're there. Will you do things that only you could do? I was talking about our church being, like in my journal, I was just praying to God, uh, writing it out and saying, will you make our, our church like a life change center for our city? See transformation take place. You know what happened? In spite of all the things they had with technical difficulties, we had the lady pass out and the body was the body and all that. But we had somebody trust Christ. And I sat down on my desk on, on Monday and I got this email. You know, people fill out the connection cards and prayer requests they have or want to be baptized. And, and somebody said they trusted one of our first time guests, trusted Christ as their Savior. And I thought, oh, Lord, that is you. I like laughed to myself. Well, that is so clearly you. It was not some slick presentation we did, something like that. Yeah, amen for sure. And we all of heaven rejoiced when that happened, just so you know. I wonder what it was like. Yeah, for sure. We can give the Lord a hand. Go ahead. You want that? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what it'll be like. This place is not our home. We're going to be rejoicing in heaven over redemption. But I wonder what it's like for the angel to watch that woman's life now. To watch her maybe do things that she wouldn't have done apart from Christ. Maybe forgive someone. Maybe give in a way she wouldn't have given before. Maybe, maybe when she sins, the turning to Christ, or maybe she wouldn't sin, she'd resist a temptation. And either way, you see redemption being played out. I wonder what it's like for them to watch our life. Because an angel will never know what it's like to have been lost and then found. They'll never know what it's like to be without hope and then to be reconciled to God and have living hope. You see, we've been given to believers new birth, new hope, New citizenship. This place is not our home. A living hope, an eternal inheritance. They don't know what it's like to be separated from God and then be made right with Him, but we do. And when we go through the suffering and our faith is proven and our faith is purified, they watch and they see our redemption being played out. All of heaven's watching. And so if you ever become bored with your salvation, know that the angels aren't. You're, you're forgetting something. So as you're going through your pain, know this, it's necessary. It is needed why? I don't know all the needs. I don't know exactly what's happening, but we've got a God who does, who's got it planned out from before the beginning of time. It's not an accident. He's not up in heaven going, oh no, what am I going to do now? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to make this good? No, he's got a plan. He is sovereign. You can trust him. He's proving your faith. He's purifying your faith. He's putting your salvation on display for the angels. And so if you're going through suffering today, my hope for you is you find some comfort in that. Maybe in the moment it's so hard to hear but maybe like I did with my hand. Look back after it's over. And it's like you, you wouldn't want to go through it again. But there's a joy in suffering. Some of you are skeptics. Maybe you've never thought about pain from this perspective before. I hope that God will rattle you and is drawing you to himself. And I'll just ask you this question. If you're a skeptic and you've got all these intellectual questions about it. If I answer all of your questions, then will you believe? Be honest with yourself, please. We've got a God and he is good. Taste and see. 